Welcome to episode 68 of the PharmExec podcast. I'm Elaine Quilici, senior editor of PharmExec magazine and your podcast host. PharmExec magazine is a multimedia publishing brand that brings you the latest commercial insights for the C-suite. On this week's episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Pana Sharma, CEO of Lantern Pharma. Pana talks about Garage Biotech and how he used some facets of the culture to benefit his company. Let's take a quick break from our sponsor, and I'll be right back with Pana. What if you had limitless access to customer insights, accelerated timelines, and set fees? At TrueSterum Network, we're fueled by connections in virtually every area of healthcare as part of MJH Life Sciences. The result? Audience-fed creative and more powerful content in less time. True Serum Network, releasing what's real. Find out more at truesterumntwk.com. Hello, podcasters. Today, I'll be interviewing Pana Sharma, CEO of Lantern Pharma. Pana is here to discuss Garage Biotech, specifically what he's learned from the culture, and how it might help to transform certain areas of pharma, including innovation and pricing. Thanks for joining me today, Pana. Uh, thank you for having me. So could you describe the concept of Garage Biotech and how it came into existence? Sure, it's uh, definitely not a new concept. You know, like many things, they take time to develop and mature. But actually the concept for Garage Biotech came around almost about 10 years ago to the month. Uh, it was published into the mainstream in Nature in October of 2010. And it had a slightly different bent at the time, but the concept of Garage Biotech was made popular in an article, again, in October of 2010, where they talked about how people could start doing fairly sophisticated experiments in biology on their own. And they were really talking about the proponents of amateur scientists and biohackers and the fact that more do-it-yourself type biology now could be done. And like many things, it took a while for that to catch on. But the core article was really talking about how the knowledge gap between the public and professional scientists, as well as the infrastructure, was beginning to lessen. And you know, one of the big things is that um, I guess the, the one of their big concepts is about you know was about citizen science and about how professional businesses could learn from the amateur scientists and hobbyists. Well, fast forward um, to 2016, there was a pretty seminal discussion, actually a presentation made by Professor Uthel Butte, CSF, and uh, he's gone on to have a tremendously illustrious career, but Uthel is you know, one of the thought leaders in digital health and particularly kind of in uh, novel drug development and uh, novel life, life sciences. And in 2016, in a discussion he gave, in, I believe it was in Australia, he made the statement that in the future, new drugs would be created by only using the computer, the internet, and free online data. And he was really addressing the issue that, you know, drug development costs were two to $5 billion. And in the future, it was, I think, called Science on the Swan Conference. He talked about in the future that, you know, really the computer and big data and the internet would be able to generate drugs. And that started a whole new wave of thinking about the use of cloud computing and cloud research and 
using all the open research data. So how did you become interested in this culture and what have you learned from it? As I took our company, Lantern Pharma, a ticker LTRN, public in June, um, I remember a lot of bankers and others saying, well, you guys have only raised $7.3 million privately. That seems like not a lot given how much progress you've made and what you're doing and how much data you have. And, and so that got me thinking a lot about this garage biotech concept. And so you know, I started looking at companies that had made similar types of development and started talking with people. And you know, in fact, a former colleague of mine started a you know, lab on demand company guy I used to work with in consulting and banking. And I talked to him about, you know, the nature of companies and what he'd been seeing and how much funding. And I talked to another investor of mine and uh, I talked to another CEO, a friend of mine in California. And so I started seeing what kind of progress was being made now in 2020. And especially it was really, I have to be honest, driven by two big things that were occurring for me professionally. One was that people were just astounded that we were raising, you know, $30 million on an IPO, but it only raised, you know, 7 million privately. And so I wanted to have a good data-driven answer for that. You know, why did we make that progress? What, you know, what was attributable to the drugs versus the data versus our approach versus the team? You know, why should they believe that it was valuable? And then second, we were all working virtually. You know, the pandemic had driven us to really redefine how we worked and the tools with which we worked and the schedules of how we interacted as a team internally and externally with our CROs and research providers. And so that really got to me to thinking is that is this a new, could this be a new normal where we can obviate the need for certain infrastructure costs and use tools differently and better and maybe democratize interaction even more. And so I dove deeper into the concept of where is garage biotech today? Can, is it possible that what Uthel said, Dr. Butz said back in 2016, could a computer data and the cloud create drugs? You know, what could, how far could we go on less than $10 million or less than $5 million? How can garage biotech spur innovation? Are there specific therapy areas that might benefit most from this? That's a great question. I spent some time talking with some incubators and accelerators like Health Wildcatters. They funded some early work at Lantern prior to my being there. In folks at Indie Bio, folks at Engage Ventures, a number of places to look at, you know, what are these models of companies that weren't raising hundreds of millions of dollars privately from all the big storied funds? And are they going to make a meaningful impact in science and biotech? And so that led me to kind of look at, well, let's redefine garage biotech. And, you know, Lantern didn't fit that description ultimately, you know, to be honest, but it, there are so many great companies that did fit that description. The companies that had were virtual by nature, were heavily reliant or primarily reliant on data that was publicly available or available readily through collaborations, investing in cloud infrastructure as their primary method of operations and data analytics, using discovery as an outsourced tool from discovery providers or third-party CROs, and using very asset-light infrastructure by using labs on demand, and even potentially key medical advisors and scientists on demand. And finally, could they 
make meaningful progress for under $5 million? Could they become, do something useful, not bring a drug to market, but could they make meaningful progress that a larger biotech or a pharma or a device company then would be able to notice and then accelerate? You know, was there enough potential to generate rewards, both that were scientifically meaningful and financially relevant? And I realized that there were a lot of companies. There were more companies than I had thought that were beginning to fit these this kind of pattern. And so that made me actually pretty excited that you know we could actually go back to that 2010 article in Nature that described you know this era of garage biology where citizen scientists and teams of professionals that weren't teams of professionals could be inspired by or take novel concepts from these so-called, you know, hobbyists. And so I think, you know, this knowledge gap has gotten really, really small. In fact, we see it today uh, when you have patients going to doctors, either for rare diseases or cancers, and they oftentimes know quite a bit more than some of the healthcare professionals. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not talking about the you know, first level Dr. Google type stuff, but I'm talking about you know, patient advocates and uh, patients themselves who dig deep into the science, gather primary data themselves, participate in studies, talk to KOLs, and engage in a meaningful analysis of their diseases, of diseases in their family, and oftentimes even encourage and sponsor uh, primary research to advance an understanding of a mechanism or a compound or a device. So we're at an ability now in society where, you know, the lay citizen can take a meaningful impact in their health. And with, I think with the community of interested parties that are available online, rapidly gather data to generate all these innovations. And so I'm pretty excited about it. And again, you know, I think, you know, that's one of the, maybe silver linings in this environment around the pandemic is that we were forced to find new ways to be productive and innovative. And I feel like they're going to probably help guide an era of increased productivity in life sciences. What are the challenges of this model? Yeah, that, that's a great question. Um, you know, for all the potential promise and hope that this model has, you know, we are seeing uh, one of the most fundamental issues and that's, um, you know, a tremendous need for more and more capital and more resources to make these, a lot of these breakthroughs take hold and to commercialize them. So I think one of the challenges that we're seeing is, let's say for five or $10 million at early kind of garage phase, you do get funding, you do come up with something innovative. There is a lot of promise. And the challenge is, you know, then how do you find the next wave? And the next wave may not be 20 or 30 million, it may be 100 million. And so I think as capital continues to wanna be concentrated, it sometimes can become a lengthy process and make the innovations very dated. It might take too long. Your ideas might leak out into others. They might get subsumed by other concepts. And so that becomes a little bit of a challenge in terms of how, you know, the next round of meaningful capital. The other thing that you also see with the garage or more virtual biotech or garage, you know, bio world is, you know, how do you protect the ideas properly? I don't think there's any clear answer yet to that. 
it's easier for compounds and therapies where you have fundamental patents and composition of matter patents. But in things that are a little bit more nebulous, like you know, digital health or cognitive behavioral therapy through a app or you know, metadata analysis of insurance records and patient outcomes, you know, how do you really protect these properly? And again, that's, you know, that's, I think, going to continue being a challenge. A third area I see is that you're going to see so much innovation and so many companies that are started up in different areas that, you know, have raised that garage biotech amount or maybe slightly above that, that you're going to see, I think, dozens and maybe hundreds of these startups, and they're going to have to consolidate. And how do you meaningfully consolidate those? That becomes a real management challenge and a strategy challenge. You know, which ones should be consolidated? Uh, how do you fit all these pieces together? And almost looks, you know, to me, it almost looks like kind of the early days of all the internet startups. You know, many survived, some came, became big, some died off, but a lot of them got big because of consolidation, that meaningful, smart, intelligent consolidation of all these pieces. And so I always wonder, do we have the right people and mindset and uh, managers to do that? So I think those are all you know, going to be challenges, but I think the fundamental thing is that it's still, it's still a very exciting time to be in this space because of the amount of real impact you can make. And more importantly, the amount of data that's being generated and shared. I mean, that just, you know, is driving a lot of this activity. So speaking of impacts, what, what impact do you think that this model could have on drug pricing? Yeah, that to me is a, one of the central questions of, you know, every, of every industry is, you know, can the cost of the product development cycle be changed in a significant way to either allow more products in the cycle, more rapid cycle development, lower cost, and in every industry, whether it be fashion or transportation, even in, in you know, automobile production, you've seen data and AI just totally in finance as well. You've seen the cost and the quality improve. And most importantly, the product cycle get compressed significantly. And so the only two areas where that remains, especially in the U.S., in most Western world not happen is higher education and drug pricing. So I think, um, you know, it's one of those things that we don't like to everyone, you know, especially probably your audience and pharma exec, you know, they don't like to talk about drug pricing head on, but, you know, I'll take a a quick stab at it. I think, you know, in, in oncology, the price of drugs makes it very stressful for cancer, cancer patients. And that's not a positive health uh, input at all. So I think we have to hit that issue head on. And the only way to do that is to change the cost of development. Our, you know, it shouldn't cost hundreds of millions or upwards of $2 billion to bring a new drug to market. But that's, you know, that's what it costs, though. You know, fortunately or unfortunately, that's kind of what it costs. And so if that's the case, you, know, you can understand why the pricing has to be where it's at or even higher. But you know, the, when the average cost of a cancer drug is approaching, you know, $300,000 and there's drugs now that cost closer to a million dollars, you have to ask yourself, you know, what is the long-term economic burden, not only to patients, but more importantly to the healthcare system that we can change. And so I think as we bring data and AI to compress the cycle so that instead of 10 or 12 years, we can do it in five or six um, instead of $142 million in discovery, we can do it for $22 million. Instead of trials for $250 million, we can do it for 
you know, 100 or 50 million that reduce economic, um, we can have, we have the potential then to reduce the economic burden. And so I think, you know, that is part of our, our vision and mission. I talk about it is that we have to change the cost of drug development and we have to pass those costs savings on to patients and to the healthcare system. And, and I think we can do that in a way that doesn't in any way impact future innovation. And so today, Americans, unfortunately, especially Americans, are presented with so many great new innovations in, with pharma companies, both in trials, but also approved. But the costs are, are just tremendous. And these costs, yes, they're largely paid by um, employers and insurance companies. But patients are taking on a more and more meaningful portion of that. And people who aren't affected by these diseases are also. And so I think we have an obligation as pharma executives to minimize or to rethink the burden of therapeutic costs. I think that's the only way to make it a sustainable long-term industry, you know, partly so that it's not beaten up by Democrats and by Republicans, so that it's not looked at as kind of a industry that's only looking out for itself. You know, that always has something that always has kind of bothered me is that, you know, people say, oh, well, pharma execs don't really want to improve healthcare. It's against their you know, their fundamental premise. And I always think that, you know, I've, I don't think I've really ever met, you know, and I've met some challenging people, but I, I really don't think I've ever met anyone in the industry that's like that. I think largely people really care a lot. They care a lot about the science. They care a lot about making impact. And even if they don't come in like that, but they, you know, you spend some time in the industry and you see how patients really are potentially affected or not affected. And you see both poor outcomes and good outcomes. I mean, you, you are changed when you sit with with patients who are in trials and you sit with patients who can't get into your trial or you sit into you talk with clinicians and so i think yeah, I, I mean i think that's something the industry has to change it's not sustainable from a regulatory standpoint from an economic standpoint and definitely not from a public perception so i think the the care the cost of cancer therapeutics and care has to change and you know we shouldn't have the enormous economic burden that we do to patients and so part of data and AI and definitely garage biotech has the ability to transform that. So I think we have an obligation to accept and maybe even accelerate the impact that garage biotech is having on uh, the healthcare industry. Do you feel like garage biotech is indicative of a generational shift in pharma? Um, that is a absolutely wonderful question. I think you're spot on. I think one of the reasons, you know, one of the most important reasons it didn't catch on in 2010 is just we didn't have the widespread availability of cheap, inexpensive cloud data computing infrastructure. You know, we couldn't crunch through all the data. Things were still burdensome in Excel. You know, the NoSQL databases didn't exist. The, you know, having, you know, supercomputers at your fingertips be able to crunch through terabytes or petabytes of data didn't exist the way it does today. But at the same time, there definitely is a change. You have fellows and grad students and PhD students who their entire life have come up in a highly, highly tech-enabled world and in a world where they're much more interdisciplinary. They're not just biologists anymore, or they're not just lab, great lab uh, personnel. These people have wonderful skills in collaborating across geographies, in being much more open, and also wanting to do things differently. And that is definitely generational. They have a different interdisciplinary skill set from day one, especially those who are leaders and who are at the front of the pack. 
and they also have a general tendency to want to do things differently and be more self-sufficient and not want to be tied to uh, bigger institutions, whether it be academic or commercial. So yeah, I think generational, it, you have now the setting and they see positive outcome in it too, right? So they are really seeing that they can work with their network to generate some meaningful insights that no one else has. And those insights can generate positive income. And then more importantly, they have channels in which to share that online and in conferences and in papers and in you know all kinds of proceedings. So I think we're, this new generation is definitely fostering and accelerating this acceptance of garage biotech. Well, thanks so much, Pana, for joining me today. It's been really interesting learning about garage biotech and how companies like Lantern might be able to use some of its aspects to strengthen their business. Uh, thank you. I really appreciate it. What if you had limitless access to customer insights, accelerated timelines, and set fees? At True Serum Network, we're fueled by connections in virtually every area of healthcare as part of MJH Life Sciences. The result? Audience-fed creative and more powerful content in less time. True Serum Network, releasing what's real. Find out more at trueserumntwk.com. And now it's time for this week's leadership tips from pharma execs. Hi, I'm Pana Sharma. I'm the CEO of Lantern Pharma. My leadership tip is to be as direct and honest immediately with your colleagues, but always take a second to share that honest feedback in a way that is kind and constructive. And if you take that moment to do that, it makes a huge difference in how the content is received, but also in your own mindset. And um, I feel like that creates a lot more productivity inside of your company. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this week's Farm Exec podcast. We are always pleased to take you behind the headlines, provide expert tips from industry leaders, and give you an inside look at what the Farm Exec staff is working on. Remember, you can always find us on the web at farmexec.com, on Twitter at farmexec, on Instagram at farmexecutive, and on YouTube. The views expressed on this podcast do not reflect the views of FarmExec, its parent company, or our advertisers. For editorial questions, please email editorial director Lisa Henderson at lhenderson at mjhlifesciences.com. And for sponsorship opportunities, please email group publisher Todd Baker at tbaker at mjhlifesciences.com.